Welcome to season two of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, brought to you by the Bold Italic. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Are you a superstitious guy, Sunil? I'm pretty superstitious, I have to admit. Like baseball hat wearing inside out if you want your team to win? I uh, I will definitely pace around, won't stand in certain places, et cetera, when I'm watching my uh, favorite sports teams. We had, for all you listeners, we had a really great first season. Really nice feedback from listeners. Guests were awesome. Guests did a great job of sharing the content out in our first season. So Sunil hasn't changed his socks because he's afraid that second season isn't going to be as good as the first if he does. I haven't changed my socks. It's stinking up this room. But but no, really. I mean, the, the things that we have changed for this season are we got better audio equipment. Better audio equipment, and we've kept one thing the same, and that's awesome guests and I think really important and current topics. I think so. I mean, I think the difference between now and, you know, uh, seven, eight months ago when we recorded the first run, Silicon Valley is kind of going through a moment. You have the San Francisco mayoral race. You had Facebook in front of Congress. And everybody's woke all of a sudden. Yeah, there's this kind of underlying maybe questioning of where a lot of people spend their energy and their time professionally. And if that's contributing to a happy and healthy culture. You know, but we have the answer to it. And in fact, you know, Yasha is microdosing right now. Microdosing on psilocybin, LSD, and something else that I've forgotten. But it makes all of the conversations that Sina and I have just that much better. You know, but in reality, we promise you that you're not going to need to microdose to get through this season. This is an amazing season of uh, This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. What's a little bit different about this season is that we have a two-part series about halfway through that's focused on a question that a lot of people asked us after the first season that, quite frankly, I think both of us were surprised, which is, how do you talk about the dating scene in the Bay Area? So we've done something special in the middle of the season. We have two really, really well-informed women who are both entrepreneurs that are going to give you an insight into the Bay Area dating scene that I don't think exists anywhere. Not only that, but we have two former Facebook product executives who are fairly senior, Antonio Garcia Martinez and Sam Lesson who provides some amazing insights. In particular, Antonio goes into detail about Facebook. Veronica Belmont and Molly Wood, two local unbelievable journalist personalities and technology celebrity product managers. In addition to that, a couple of really amazing writers that are at Salon right now. That's right. And we really run the gamut on views, on topics, and you know, definitely tune in for the whole season. We hope you enjoy the season. On today's episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, we have a couple of interesting guests. We have Keith Spencer and Nicole Carlos, who are from the popular online magazine Salon. We kind of get into, I think, something that's pretty important to you personally, Sunil. You've been going to Burning Man for 17 years now. I'm I'm a Burning Man veteran. Yeah, Burning Man. I mean, his hair is pink today. I think he's just getting ready. (laughs) You know, uh, I've, I've never... Gone to Burning Man, I'll, I'll admit, which is one of the one of the Silicon Valley bucket list items I have. But but Keith, as you, as you know, wrote a pretty viral piece back in 2015 about Burning Man. He uh, kind of had a a pretty real truth about Burning Man, about the the way that it is a blank slate, and the blank slate allows for access to really wealthy people, and wealthy people can kind of control the things that they want. And it it doesn't feel that out of place with what's going on in culture today. Not, not at all. And, and I think Keith and Nicole offer kind of a very much counterbalanced perspective to 
you know, a lot of our guests who are from the technology industry. Yeah, Nicole in particular really dives into like why you can be optimistic about what's going on in the technology world and what companies need to be thinking about and people need to be thinking about in Bay Area if they're working in technology. Uh, really nice counterbalance between the two of them in the discussion. Definitely, and I don't necessarily agree with everything that they said as somebody who's in the technology industry, but it's always refreshing to hear an, a counterpoint. Absolutely. And, you know, for every one of our guests, we are obligated to agree with everything they say. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. That's a criteria for them being on the show, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of their writer that everybody demands when they come in. But, you know, we're kind of becoming bigger and more popular as a podcast duo. And I think maybe for season three, we'll be able to say, we don't have to agree with everything you say. <laughs> that sounds about right. Thank you both for joining us today on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. We wanted to start off and talk about and why you're here, like why you came to the Bay Area. Keith, where did you grow up and how does it inform your view of San Francisco? So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona, but my ancestral home on my dad's side is the Bay Area. I would be a sixth generation Bay Area resident if my dad hadn't decamped for Tucson. He was like an early victim of sort of like, you know, cost of living, decided to leave because he couldn't afford it. Six generations ago? Yeah, so my my grandfather's great grandparents came by covered wagon in the 1880s. And then my great-great-grandmother, Maggie Mae Spencer, took the Oregon Trail to Oregon and then moved again by covered wagon from Oregon to the Bay Area. And she and her daughter lived in the mission during the 1906 earthquake. And she's told it has all these interesting memories that she's passed down. And uh, one of the best ones, my grandfather's great uncle lowered this ball of yarn down a giant crevasse to see how deep the crack, and like, imagine this, like the city is like burning down all around him, you know, and this 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 guy's like, oh, I wonder how deep the fissure is of this this earthquake crack. And he's like lowering a ball of yarn. This cop had to like grab him and be like, get away from that fissure. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so curiosity runs in the family. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like the Bay Area was always kind of, you know, my family's ancestral home and we would come and visit my grandparents and my great uncle and aunt and my dad's cousins a lot in the Bay Area growing up. And it was where he was from. And so when I was 18, I actually ended up going to UC Santa Cruz starting school there. And that was, I think, when I first, you know, became enamored of the Bay Area. It was like, it, it was interesting growing up in Tucson. Like, I, I never knew that there were places that you could go where you didn't have to, like, you know, hold your tongue. It's a really religious place. And there's a lot of, like, really conservative people, which my family is neither religious nor conservative. So, like, growing up, my, my, my dad and mom would be like, oh, you know, don't tell people. You know, you shouldn't be too open about the fact that you're, like, Jewish, like... You, you shouldn't, you know, like, like things, things like that. Like don't talk about politics with people. And so I kind of grew up being like, okay, you know, I like, don't talk to people about politics. And then coming to Santa Cruz in like 18, it's like, wow, there's actually places in the country I can live where I don't have to pretend, you know, I don't have to hide like aspects of who I am. And that was like 2004. So that's kind of was what the Bay Area felt like back then. It was a much more like liberal culture. Nicole, talk about kind of where you grew up and in particular, what you took away from growing up that felt like it had a kinship to what's going on here in the Bay Area. Uh, well, thank you for having us. So I grew up actually in the suburbs of Chicago, and I went to college at the University of Iowa to study journalism. And from there, I moved to New York City to work in publishing. And then from there, I actually moved here to work in tech. So I have a really interesting perspective as I have worked in tech, um, but I've also written about tech and have worked in publishing as well. Um, Is Iowa a lot like the Bay Area? 
Uh, oh, very similar. Yes. <laughs> Actually, so in Iowa City, Iowa, where I went to school, it's pretty progressive and liberal, and it is sort of a bubble. So I guess in those ways, you can say that there are similarities, but it is the Midwest, and there are Midwestern traditions, and um, so it is a little different in that sense of regarding priorities and um, how people, what people value. That's interesting. So when you think about values and values having a relationship into a city, do you not feel like San Francisco has that core here? I think it's different. I think in the Midwest, the values are really centered around tradition, around family, around friends. Um, I, for one, am probably one of the only people in my family and out of my friend group who moved to the Bay Area, who moved to a coast. Um, I think here in the Bay Area, what's really valued is um, freedom and creativity and really following your dreams. One of the reasons I wanted to have both of you on together is that there's a contrast between your backgrounds. Uh, Nicole, you know, you're working for Salon now as well, and, and you've written extensively, but you came here wanting to work in tech. Mm-hmm. That was the primary driver why you're here. Keith, it sounds like you have no desire to ever work in tech. <laughs> can, you, uh, can you two just riff on that for a second? And I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, end up in the same place with two different motivations. Well, I can start, um, and I've written about this for the Bold Italic in my essay. Um, I left tech when it sold its soul, and it really goes in depth about my journey coming here. And I moved here um, from New York City, where I was working in publishing in 2013. And I found myself being very, um, very tired by the drive in New York City. It felt like in New York City, your identity was based on who you were and who you worked for and how much you were working. Um, The grind was really, really tough, and I felt like people there didn't want anything else aside from working and trying to make it in their respective industries. And so I started coming to San Francisco for an ex-boyfriend, my college boyfriend, and that was when I was really first exposed to the culture here, and he was an engineer and he worked at a startup. So I was really seeing the startup work culture and how he had um, very flexible hours and unlimited vacation and how it seemed that his employer really, you know, valued him and he was getting all of these benefits. So I was like, oh, that's really cool. (laughs) I want to do that. And I got worn down in New York City. And essentially, it was that tiredness that drove me to Silicon Valley and to work at a startup. And I did it for about two and a half years. And it was really exciting. But I mean, I think that I kind of got caught on to what we talk about now and how um, I felt like it was still capitalism. It was still a business. I don't know if I was really valued as an employee or it was really encouraged for me to follow my dreams or my other activities. You know, I was still an employee making money for the company. Are are you an anti-capitalist? I would say I'm a socialist. I don't really value capitalism. I wouldn't say I'm an anti-capitalist, but... There's just more. There's more. Yeah. Exactly. Do you still have a similar view from when you moved here? Or maybe that that experience that you had as you were thinking about moving here, that kind of idealistic view of companies and how they take care of people. Is that still the view that you have today? Yeah, that is still a view I have today. And keep in mind, I was 23 when I moved here. So I really, you know, I guess you would say I drank the Kool-Aid and I was really excited to try something different. So sort of same question to you as I had for Nicole. I mean, you have always had this perspective of of tech, or at least it seems you have for a while, a somewhat negative perception. I don't know if that's a fair characterization, but in your own words, what's your view of tech and how it's affected well, the city? 
My view's been really shaped by watching what happened to like my grandfather. So, so my grandfather lived in the Bay Area his whole life. He was born here. He grew up on a farm in Mountain View. He went to Mountain View Grammar School. I mean, he saw so much of the Bay Area and knew it as an agricultural place. And I watched him growing up have to move into smaller and smaller homes. He never bought a place. And then eventually when he was 90, he got evicted and he couldn't afford to live anywhere in the Bay Area. And he and his wife, they were like, well, you know, he's a veteran. He's a World War II veteran. So he can supposedly get this type of um, low-income loan. And he, long story short, he, he, they moved to Chico. He couldn't actually get the loan. And the stress of moving when he was that old, he admitted this when he was more cogent, but kind of ruined his, his mind. And he became really unhappy and really miserable and depressed in his old age and still is. And so I kind of watched him get destroyed mentally and psychologically because of gentrification over the years. And I think watching that and the trauma of that really shaped my perception of, you know, what what is going on socially in the Bay Area. I mean, it's interesting because I think like Silicon Valley people often think of themselves as a community, like the tech community, the Silicon Valley community. But there's there's no one in the community helping someone like my grandpa, who's really just a case study in what happens to a lot of people. And, you know, there's no one from the tech community reaching out and trying to help people like that that I observed. There's, there wasn't a social connection between what entrepreneurs were doing and the way people were interacting and what happened to people like him. And so I think that shaped my perception from, from my formative sort of teenage years. So uh, it strikes me that, you know, you could take one of two different approaches when you experience something traumatizing like that, which is go the route where you have, which is being a you know good, strong activist for people like your grandpa? Or did it ever cross your mind, well, maybe if you can't beat them, join them, and I could be a really talented content marketer for a tech company? You know, it's something I've thought about. Actually, it's interesting because, so I have a STEM degree too. Like I, my undergrad, I double majored in English and physics. And I admit that I, you know, when I was watching this happen to him, I started to blame myself. I was like, am I, am I being selfish? I could just get a tech job. I mean, I'd probably be very unhappy but I could take a year or two and program scientific programming. I mean, I, I was like, I could get high paying tech job and buy him a house and rescue him and save him. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I'd been in therapy about this over the years. And I think what I got out of it was, I think I was just, you know, you can't blame yourself for things like that that happened to your family. But I ended up being able to build a career as a critic, um, which I think partly was born out of being more critical as a result of watching what happened to him, I guess. Nicole, I uh, read your writing and I really appreciate it because I, I read into it this kind of hopefulness in some regards. And it's a lot to do with, I think, the worldview that you have, the travel that you have. Uh, and then there's this kind of direct biting. This is what's going on in technology that kind of is a juxtaposition to it. I'm really curious how your current kind of world travels or the more recent world travels color your view on what's going on in the Bay Area. Do you see trends that are showing up globally that have a relationship into what has happened in your experience since you moved to San Francisco? So to give listeners some context, so when I did leave tech, I quit my job and did a very cliched move of just buying a one-way ticket to Bangkok with no plan. So I traveled Southeast Asia and India for about six months and really to do some thinking and really get myself back on the creative track that I wanted to be on. I'm the one that I kind of wanted when I first came to San Francisco, but didn't end up getting and didn't end up feeling fulfilled with. So I think, I mean, it really opened my eyes to what a bubble San Francisco is and that the daily struggles that I had when I was working in tech and working at a startup are just really meaningless compared to the daily struggles of people around the world. So, I mean, I think it really opened my eyes and like the pressure of, you know, writing X number of blog posts to reach a marketing goal when people are just, you know, trying to really fulfill their basic needs every day. 
Have you found yourself becoming more involved in San Francisco politics after the travels? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I was pretty involved before as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, volunteering, voting is really important, educating myself, educating others. Volunteering, I think, is a, a very noble way to spend time. But there's a gap, I think, between the understanding of what you can do and what's needed. Do you have mm-hmm. any recommendations for listeners that are thinking about volunteering in the Bay Area to get more involved in San Francisco politics? Like, what's the entry into volunteering in San Francisco politics for you? I think finding what you're most interested in. I think finding something that you're really passionate about. I think giving your passion and sharing that with others. So as a writer, I can um, help tutor children who, you know, want to become better writers or just covering topics that people are more interested in learning and really surfacing some underground stories and community-driven stories. Keith, uh, on a scale of like zero to 10, 10 being it should burn in hell. How much do you hate Burning Man? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. It's like I don't I don't think I hate it. I would say five, I guess. So let's give the listener some context once again. Uh, Keith alluded to an article that he wrote in 2015 that went quite viral about Burning Man, and even the bold italic has been critical of Burning Man. What do you think is the fundamental problem with Burning Man? If you had to describe it, yeah. So you know, I've I've attended. And my observation about, like, some of the things happening there about, you know, like, the, the sort of billionaires coming in and the turnkey camps are making people angry. My- can I can I push on that for just one second? Sure. Just play, play doubles. So billionaires as a percentage of the whole population, I mean, we they're not that many. So yeah. in reality, is it really billionaires attending or is it? Yeah, it's so it's this is something that applies to a lot of serious society. If you have a world that is like a blank slate and anyone can come in and, you know, bring what they want to it, right? Like the world is going to evolve in a way that those who have the most money and power, you know, and end up sort of taking it over. Like there's no egalitarian guarantee at Burning Man. It's not, there's no democracy at Burning Man. It's an open space, but like who can control what Burning Man looks like and feels like it's the people who can bring the most and have the most wealth and the, the means to. And so, you know, I don't think, like the critique that I wrote originally in Jacobin, uh, Why the Rich Love Burning Man, it wasn't, I don't think it was that unique of a, critique or something it was more just like saying like look this is something that happens in day-to-day society like in san francisco like it's 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 like a microcosm of what's happening in the larger scale though it's more extreme because at least in a place like san francisco there is voting you know ron conway may control a lot of like local politics but we do still have this electoral guarantee and we could still organize whereas in burning man it's like literally just this blank slate and so like rich people can like pay people to build their camps for them and rich people can like make these sort of elite or more exclusive things and they just have the means. And plus there's like a ticket and en- an entry price. So there's like stats about how Burning Man is gentrified that are pretty interesting. Or, you know, you can see it, how it's changed over the years. So in essence, is what you're saying that Burning Man may reinforce some of the things that you perceive as, you know, being wrong with how San Francisco is functioning? Yeah, yeah. Or like, I mean, anytime that you have like an environment where there's no democracy baked into it, the people who have the most power and the most wealth will de facto become those who control, you know, what it looks like, the culture and the and the society. You know, like I said, it's a microcosm. So like in the US at large, it's like a lot of people now genuinely think that the way that world change is going to happen is like we just we just let the billionaires like do good things. We 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 pick the right billionaires and let the projects of the Bill Gateses and the Warren Buffetts um, of the world decide how society should be and how it should be run rather than us sort of deciding collectively. Like it's it's part of like a larger general sentiment of how I think politics has, has changed in sort of the, the our like uh, neoliberal epic. 
Nicole, uh, just to switch gears a little bit, we're recording this particular podcast several days after the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and there was a speaker there, a comedian, Michelle Wolf, who I think hit at some of the bigger issues that journalists deal with right now by making fun of the fact that the current president is good for business, right? good for the business of journalism. You've taken a pretty aggressive stance in some cases around technology companies and they're like doing good or not in the world. At least that's the way that I read it. But I want to really pointedly ask you as a journalist, is going after tech good for business? Is it good for the business of journalism? Absolutely, the business of journalism. I don't think so. So it's funny because Keith and I were just um, hanging out with an author the other night. He wrote, um, live, work, 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 die. And we were talking about how it's actually really difficult for a journalist to take a very critical view of the technology world, the startup world of Silicon Valley, because that could be their next job. So I think that a lot of journalists are very hesitant to um, really critique tech. I agree. And and for your perspective, if you were to give kind of coaching to journalists, what's the angle that we should be thinking about or journalists should be thinking about when you're trying to cover technology? Because it's so pervasive here in the Bay Area in particular. Mm -hmm. Well, what I think is really interesting is the intersection between politics and technology and the intersection between culture and technology and really how technology is shaping our society and shaping our world. It has such a big impact and it's happening at such a fast pace and it's so integrated into our everyday lives that I think we're really unaware of what the impact will be in the future. We're already so addicted to our phones. We're glued to our screens. We're basically sitting in front of boxes every day. That's affecting our physical bodies. That's affecting our mental bodies. So I I read the the headline, not the article yet, that was posted by WNYC today. And the title of the article was, When was the last time you peed without your phone? That's, yeah. (laughs) I I do want to ask a a different question. I'll ask Keith one and Nicole one. So Keith, fix the housing problem in San Francisco in five sentences or less. Sure. Decommodify housing. Make it so that the city, every time that there's a, a property that a tax repossessed property, someone doesn't pay their taxes, turn that into public housing and or redevelop them into public housing. And uh, yeah, actually, uh, that's only two, but I think that would do it. Nicole, fix the biggest problems you perceive with tech in five sentences or less. Unionizing tech workers. Oh, that's a good one. Why? And what would that accomplish? Because it would create a sense of democracy and tech companies in Silicon Valley. It would give tech workers a voice, which I think that they need. So I think um, a lot of people in tech, I think there are a lot of good ideas. I don't think that everyone who works in tech is bad. I think that there just needs to be more of a level playing field. I think that uh, intentions don't need to be solely driven by money and capitalism and reaching goals that investors who aren't even involved in the company really um, are setting for these companies. So we, we've been together talking for the last 20 minutes. It's been an awesome conversation. Um, we generally want to end on a request for both of you. And um, Keith, we're going to start with you and then uh, Nicole with you. In the kind of world of social media, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, wherever you spend your time, if you could provide our listeners with a recommendation on who they should be following right now, who would that person be? I find that I have more value paying attention to like um, what's going on in the street. Like I look and watch at what, you know, the people I see – Riding Muni, the homeless people I see on the street, the graffiti I see on the sidewalk or on the wheat pasting and stickers that I see plastered on things. I I get a lot of my story ideas and my thoughts about what the Bay Area is like and how it's changing by observing just, you know, people around me. And I think that gives you a zeitgeist to the city that you can't get on social media. 
I like that. And now that you've answered the question that you wanted to answer, I'm going to move it over to Nicole and ask you the same question. And then, Keith, we're going to come back to you and stick you to answering who's one person that we should follow on one of the networks that you listen to. Yeah, this is actually a very difficult question for me to answer as well, because I really don't religiously follow anyone on social media. It's actually hard for me to keep up with Twitter. And I just use Instagram when I take a pretty picture of nature, really, and want to post it and put a filter on it. But I would say... I don't even know. I would say pay attention to America's youth right now. Um, I just spent a day about two weeks ago going down to Sacramento with over 200 teens, and they were lobbying for common sense gun laws um, with state legislators. And that was the most inspiring day I've had in months, really. So I'd say listen to them and pay attention to what they're saying because it's really important. Uh, I know both of you are active on social media, so we can't get around this question. I looked at both of you on Twitter yesterday. Nicole, I I saw you post on Facebook about wanting to hear from Facebook employees Mm-hmm. About what how morale is at the company. So I know you're active on social media. I, am, I follow but you. I don't follow people. I use it to promote my writing because as a writer, you have to do that. And I know you follow Bill Gates because he tweeted your New York Times article. He did. So I find it hard to believe that you can't figure out one person that you enjoy following. I listen to a podcast called On Being, and I really like that. Yeah, with Kristen Tippett. She's a really wonderful interviewer. Okay, okay, terrific. Glad we were able to get that one out. Keith, I know you listen to podcasts. I know you are an avid media guy. You're a a student of the game. I've worked with you. Tell me one person that you like in media, whether you follow them or not on Twitter? Um, I, you know, one really interesting uh, thinker, poster, is there's a, a woman on, on Twitter named Kieran Opal, K-I-R-A-N-O-P-A-L, and she has really interesting perspectives on, she's kind of a good anti-imperialist voice on the left and has thought and written and worked a lot around Middle Eastern politics. Yeah, I get a lot of value from following her. That wasn't so hard, was it? So (laughs) I want to ask one closing question that I'm sure Yasha may have one as well. Keith, what is a techie? This is a fascinating question. So there's actually, um, there has been some anthropological research around this, that there actually is like uh, shared culture and cultural values. A lot of people, not everybody works in tech industry, but a lot of people, particularly in the Bay Area who work in the tech industry have. And, you know, I I guess if described, I'd say it's like, uh, what's sometimes called the California ideology, this belief that progress and technology are synonymous, that it's good to tinker and hack and play with things, but also that like, you know, those ideas are inherently interlinked, that if we have more technology, things will inherently be better without any critical examination of what that means. And so and so that your definition is this shared view of the belief that tech will advance society. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole, do you buy into that? Um. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, you somewhat recently spent some time with Deepak Chopra. Um, well, I interviewed him on the phone, yes. And as you think about the body of work that he and his team have produced, like, is there something about that work that you think has a particularly meaningful relationship into what's happening in the Bay Area with technology companies in particular? Yeah, um, something Deepak Chopra told me, um, he said that anxiety is created when a person is basically only thinking about him or herself, when a person doesn't really realize the connection that we all have to each other. And I think maybe if you looked at Silicon Valley as a human and you could think like there's a lot of anxiety here because there's such a disconnect from what's happening around the world. 
I think that's a pretty wonderful idea to wrap up the show on. We really appreciate both of your time. Um, appreciate the thoughtfulness and answering these questions for our listeners and uh, looking forward to having you back at a future episode. Excellent. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. You know, I really enjoyed that discussion, Yasha. I did too. I'm kind of shocked to have now met somebody who can claim they've got multiple generations of family from San Francisco. Keith just feels like, you know, he is legit San Francisco. And you hear a lot of people who come here and talk about being from here, but no one can really argue with his credentials. It's true. I'm still pretty fascinated from the conversation around the idea of socialism that Nicole brought up as well. There's a kind of purity in the idea, but boy, in practice, I don't know how I feel. Yeah, I don't know how I feel either. And I think a lot of people who either share her views or disagree, regardless, it's going to generate a pretty interesting discussion. We hope you enjoyed today's episode on This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. If you liked today's podcast and you like Sunil, like I like Sunil, please go to any of the app stores where you found our podcast and rate us five stars. We'd appreciate it.